Hello and welcome to Tomlin's Harmonica Podcast, where I'll be hanging out with players and teachers and having conversations loosely based around harmonica. Over the past 30 years, this week's guest has pushed the harmonica to new technical heights, while still staying true to the blues tradition. He's a technical wizard who's won too many awards to list, plus he's a fantastic and thoughtful teacher. He is Carlos Del Junco. Welcome to the podcast, Carlos. How are you doing? Hey, Tomlin. I'm doing great. Thanks for, uh, for doing this. Well, it's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, so for, for people who don't know where you are, uh, where, whereabouts are you based? Um, well, right now, for the last, since about 2007, I've been in this little town of Port Hope, Ontario. It's a, a really pretty little town, just 100 kilometers east of, of Toronto on Lake Ontario. So, yeah, in Canada. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and because this is, this is very specific to an era of, of the world, um, what's, it, what's it like currently with uh, COVID and, and lockdown and things like that? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this is a, it's, I mean, this town definitely picks up in the summertime with some tourism. We've got some really, we've got a really beautiful little river where there's a salmon run a couple of times a year, trout and salmon. And, uh, so there's a, it's a bit of a tourist destination. They've been closing the beach on, on weekends because of that. But otherwise things are, you know, there hasn't been any, we've just gone into what we call stage three, which is opening up mm -hmm. where I'm playing my first outdoor concert this coming Saturday, up to a hundred people allowed to watch, you know, uh -huh. properly socially distanced, you know, in a field in a farmer's field and yeah. And restaurants just opened up for in our town, like in our rural, but in Toronto, which is a big urban center, um, they're still, they haven't gone into this new stage three with letting out indoor restaurants open and stuff. Okay. So it's kind of different yeah. from, from city to town to. Yeah, yeah. If it's a big urban center. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. We're, we're kind of similar. We've just, just started opening some stuff up, but no gigs still, there's no public performances. Uh, so yeah. I'm very envious that you get to go and play yeah, this weekend. Yeah. I'm <laughs> super excited. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So. That's awesome. So, um, was, was, was COVID was lockdown an opportunity to work on things that you didn't have time to work on before or. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I've been procrastinating on, well, not procrastinating. Um, you know, Ronnie Shellist has been doing webinars for years and years, and I know you interviewed him. And so I actually bugged him quite a bit, you know, uh, talking to him and emailing and he helped me get started on, you know, how to set things up for the webinar platform and doing the zoom thing and all that. So now I've done three with good success and yeah, I'm looking forward to doing my next one in August. I'm just doing like one a month for now. That's enough. That's very cool. And they, they've been yeah. going well and well attended. Yeah. 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 The next one actually is August the 15th and uh, we're going to be looking at a piece by David Bergen, a solo. And so he's going to be coming on as a guest. And we're going to talk about, you know, his life as a player when he was really playing full time and, you know, his, the one record that he recorded, Wild Child, there's just some amazing, like some of the best harmonica playing I've ever heard. Like he was a huge influence on me, you know, just that one record and some of the other stuff he did as a sideman with other musicians, really fantastic musicians. Um, he had, he made such an impression on me. I'm going off on a tangent here, but no, you know, no, that's cool. like, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, progressive players who aren't regurgitating stock, little Walter and, and Sonny boy, Williamson licks, you know, guys like Bergen, David Bergen and Paul delay immediately come to mind mm -hmm. who still have a really, you know, rooted in blues, but, um, doing something a bit different. And, and so that's, yeah. So I'm really psyched to get, be getting into that. That's with very David. cool. Well, look, you'll you'll hear that I'm typing. I'm I'm making notes of things for for people who are listening to click uh, links uh, below the podcast when they're listening to to check out the the webinar because this will go out before then. So hopefully, some people will. Uh, yeah, let me know. That. Yeah, let me know how much time I have because I haven't got the link up yet. 
So I, I thought about that and I thought, oh, do I need to get the link up? But, but of course, you're not going to get this posted for a while. So no, no, I'll, I'll let you know after we finish recording. I'll uh, I'll let you know what the the, the date will be. Um, and yeah, I definitely want to talk about some of your influences, but uh, um, I maybe want to go back a little bit and kind of get a little bit of the the origin story because um, uh, you, you don't have the most Canadian name. And uh, I, I read that you were born in Cuba. And uh, what, what's what's the story of, of your early life? <laughs> yeah, well, in a nutshell, I mean, my uh, my parents were the, uh, the, the condensed story, mostly Cuban. There's a lot of there is a, a mix there. But um, uh, I was born just pre Castro in 58. And so um you know, my father saw what was going on. So we left the country, right? They'd already been out of the country and stuff mm -hmm. and traveled around. They'd actually lived in Canada for a while before that. Anyway, so we came back to Canada and I've been in Canada since year one, basically, since I was one year old. And so we got out before Castro put a lid on things. He'd actually come into power in January 59. But and we left like right after that, just before he put a lid on things, you know. Wow. And have you been back since and since you died? Um, yeah. I mean, just once for like a vacation just to take in the culture. And that was um, 1991. Okay. Just there was a, the, just to take in the, the, the jazz festival was happening in annual in Havana. So I went to watch some of the music there and yeah, and hang out in the beach a bit and take some tours and yeah. Very cool. And uh, did did you come from a musical family? Is that is there kind of did you grow up listening to to great music that got you into playing or? No, that's a good question. I mean, I was um, my dad wasn't really music at all. He was visual, so I think I got the best of both. My mom was musical. Uh, my dad was an architect, and and I I got into drawing. I was the only one that I was like visually inclined as a mm -hmm. as a kid, and then I ended up going to art school for four years. My mother played classical like a piano and she took up the flute after I was born. In fact, I have a vivid memory, one of my first memories hanging out. I was the youngest of six kids, so to answer your question again, um, yes, they were bringing home uh, up to 10 years old or my oldest, uh, uh, so five other siblings, bringing home the latest Beatles and Rolling Stone records and then my next two eldest brothers were bringing home some blues records as well. So that had a big influence. But I remember sitting on the floor when my mother was practicing and she'd be playing some riff, you know, like reading sheet music and, and working on this thing again and again and again. And then I remember once going, oh, I think you got that one. You got, you know, but I'm sure it had subliminally this huge impression on me you know, about practice and good mm -hmm. practice, like, you know, repeating, 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 because, you know, I'll sit there for a long time and work on something until I can get it, you know, slowly and diligently. And that's something I really talk about with my students about, you know, that's a big component of my, of my teaching is just how to practice well. And, you know, of course, there's oodles of technique on the harmonica, but anyway. I, I that's the biggest thing that I think is really difficult for people who haven't grown up either learning an instrument or seeing people learn an instrument. They don't really appreciate what practice looks like and what good practice looks like. And so that, you know, they, they maybe play it once or twice and, and hit it once or twice and think, okay, I've, I've achieved this and then move on. But that's when the, the drilling starts, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Once you, once you finally got the riff right, then you got to make it so that you don't have to think about it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I actually just did a podcast uh, that came out this week uh, with a, a composer friend of mine, and it was l just a, a glorified rant about practice, which was uh, very cathartic yeah. for both of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you started harmonica. Um, I, I read that you started at 14. What... What kind of, uh, got, why did you pick a harmonica? Oh, I mean, in a nutshell, a friend of mine played, he played guitar and with a neck brace, he wore a harmonica and just the sound of him bending a note, I think it was just that visceral sound. I was like, yeah, I got to make that sound. And, you know, basically I went out and bought one and started, you know, listening to records and then started taking some lessons locally, super tramp. 
that opening track on school days, I think from their very first record, you know, uh-huh. and then I, then I was listening to Paul Butterfield. I mean, that was my biggest influence in the early days was Paul Butterfield. Then I was buying every harmonica record I could get my hands on from little Walters and Sonny boys. And, but I, I funnily enough, I was drawn to the more, again, you know, people that weren't just into blues and music. I was listening to all different kinds of music. Um, so Lee Oscar was a big influence, um, you know, but at the same time I was listening to blues rock and I mean, jazz rock, you know, in the seventies as a teenager, jazz fusion, you know, prog rock, you know, you name it. And I think, I think it sort of carried over into the stuff that I play well, while my heart is still, you know, my heart and soul is still, I love the instrument as a blues voice you know, I've always been intrigued at sort of the other possibilities of stuff you can do. Hence, my records end up being pretty eclectic. Yeah, that, that was something I was trying to pin down is is whether, well, I, I want to know how you describe yourself. Would you would you think of yourself more as a bluesy jazz player or a jazzy blues player? Well, a bit of both, you know, again. My, <laughs> you're, you're not allowed uh, you know, a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, you know, like my first love is still absolutely blues. I mean, it, for me, and it's so subjective, you know, because I hear a lot of young overblow players who are really, oh, yeah, I got to play with overblows. And they're doing all this sort of really cool technical stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of technique on the harmonica. But if if you don't have that foundation of, first of all, a good tone, you know, a good sense of phrasing and groove, you know, the diatonic harmonica, you know, it's a, it's a roots country folk blues instrument and you know again subjectively you know i i'm just this is just me the the voice that it has and the fact that you can make all these fantastic uh you know just that sound is just so visceral and and um you can't get that kind of same kind of bending sound in a chromatic harmonica. But the point is, again, I hear a lot of young players who are into overblows, but they sort of, they just skipped all that, that blues foundation. And again, I keep repeating myself the whole subjective thing, but that's me, you know, that's how I hear things. Do you, do you think that's maybe a, just a, a young musician thing full stop? There's, there's the desire to be very, technically advanced because I, I see that in guitar and piano and drums and maybe the kind of musicality comes later for a lot of people that's a that's a that's a loaded and big question and i'm not sure if i can if i'm really equipped to answer that because i think you know there is some weird mysterious thing about how re, just how everyone hears music period mm-hmm. and, and and so you know i uh, i read a, a good book about um, a jazz piano player called Kenny Warner called effortless mastery, just cause again, you know, I'm intrigued all about all things practice. And, and, and there was an interviewer asking him, you know, if you wanted one more thing and you're playing, like, what would you want? And he said, technique, technique, you know, and you sort of go, wait a minute, what do you mean? Tech? Wait a second, technique. But all, the point is, is that the player and the personality of the player, no matter who you are, will be expressed. And the more technique you have, the better ability you have to express who you are as a player, you know? So, you know, you can never have enough. Well, I mean, uh, there's a balance, you know, but the point is the more technique of working on a specific thing, a riff or a sound or a, yeah, you, you know, the better able to, you, to express who you are. Absolutely. So uh, this, this is interesting because I, I think a, a lot of people maybe don't think that, that someone like you is still thinking about practice. Uh, but to me, it sounds like you, you, you probably still are very clear about what you're working on currently. Uh, what, what, what are you practicing? What are you excited about? You know, I go through phases and actually the thing is, since I've been doing this webinar stuff, it's, I'm amazed at how much time it takes just to like be organized and, you know, being a little bit of a perfectionist. I want to make sure that my webinars are really well prepared. And that's been taking up a lot of time, just the learning curve. And making sure materials are together, PDFs, and um, so a long-winded way to say that sometimes I don't practice, and then when I do practice, I'm you know I try to make it count, even if it's just half an hour or an hour here or there, and inevitably I'm just looking for 
ways to take things, you know, my, I'm calling my webinar series blues, you know, harmonica blues, a little outside of the box series, kind of like, you know, like the Paul DeLays and the David Bergens. And I like to think that I'm a little bit, you know, I'm outside of the box and what I do in my own playing as a blues voice, you know. So um, the point is what I practice, I guess, is just things that are going to, you know, kind of like the little dog listening to the gramophone. One ear is going to go up and go, oh, that was different, you know. And, and so whatever it is I might practice, it's maybe some little piece of language that might just sort of be a little twist and turn on a turnaround in a cool way. I'm loving the sound of like the flat five interval and how can I use that? You know, uh-huh. you know, it's part of the, the blues scale or whatever. It's just one interval, but you know, so sometimes I'll just practice descending flat five intervals or minor third intervals, but, and then how can I incorporate them into some piece of blues language, you know, but it, it you know, that it's funny that you asked that because for me, it still comes back to, you know, applying it to something that's bluesy. Mm-hmm. And and I like to think that I'm trying to put something, if I'm playing something jazzy, it still has some element of a, of a blues language in it. And some of my favorite sax players have that quality, you know, the Cannonball Adderleys, even Paul Desmond, who was this beautiful, lyrical, sort of soft player. I mean, I say soft, he had this very velvety tone he had a lot of blues in his playing when you, you know, his playing, he could play these really simple ideas, but his playing is ridiculous and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and all that stuff influences everything that I do. You know, I went, I read a book about him last summer and I was just listening to everything he recorded. Of course you can with streaming services. So that's where my brain goes anyway, again, a long winded answer, but <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's interesting. And I, I like this, like, it, it's very obvious that you do pay uh, homage to the tradition of blues, but, but you, you are pushing it. And I, I like that. I think, you know, a, a trained ear can hear all these things that, you know, little Walter wasn't putting in his playing all the kind of chromaticisms and, and overblows and kind of filling in and playing a little bit outside. But it's still to, to someone who listens to blues harmonica and doesn't really know what's happening. It, it sounds like blues harmonica, you've got a, a lot of the tone and the feel and, and, and that kind of language. And I think that that's, that's really cool. Because like you said, there are a lot of kind of younger players who are being very technically advanced and, and pushing um, and, and maybe forget what, what was great about the instrument in the first place. Yeah, again, this is what's great about the instrument. <laughs> I'll just play that same riff again and again throughout this, this interview. But, um, you know, again, that's, that's just my subjective, you know, take on things. So how how did how did the overblow thing come into your playing? Because that that's obviously a a big part of of what you're known for. Um, how did it start? Uh, you know, I I I know that I'd stumbled on them accidentally before I'd heard of Howard, and then and then uh, and you know, and, and the whole thing about setting up harmonicas and stuff. I, I might have even done some fiddling without even realizing, you know, before meeting Howard. And then, of course, guys like Joe Felisco were there. He was like the first, quote unquote, customizer to start, you know, making harps play better and, and doing modifications to make overblows play better. But um, how did I first get into it? I mean, really, it was just sort of partly a just frustration of I, I you know, I dabbled with the chromatic and I never... I never really liked the mechanized tone sound. I mean, I've, I've, I've certainly appreciate really great blues playing on the chromatic or, or guys like Stevie wonder who really make a chromatic talk. Whereas a guy like Toots Tielman, who's like one of the seminal or, or what do you, whatever you say, um, you know, the most well-known jazz chromatic harmonica players. I never liked his tone. I just don't like, you know, and, and when I actually heard him play, um, uh, a beautiful player that he, you know, he, he's playing and all this stuff. Um, 
that he would play because again he was a ridiculous uh amazing jazz player but it, uh i heard him play diatonic re- harmonic on a recording and i realized he could barely bend a note for his life it was wow. really interesting and i thought ah stevie wonder knows how really knows how to play a diatonic you can hear that in boogie on reggae woman so that translates into his chromatic playing a guy like paul delay you know was ma- mainly you know diatonic player played gorgeous sounding chromatic you know he could really make it talk because he understood the nuances of embouchure and and and, and putting expression into the notes uh, yeah but you you weren't you weren't uh tempted to to kind of put the, the effort in for chromatic no no i i think you know, there's a part of it is just stubbornness. And another part of it is just a love, the resistance of the feeling of an overblow. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I have this analogy about sculpture and, you know, that it's just a different way of creating textures and shapes, but the resistance of the stone when I was carving stone in my early twenties and throughout my twenties, I mean, I went to Italy to study stone carving with a, uh, like a, a, a grant after high school. Um, and, I akin to sort of that resistance of the overblow to the resistance of the stone, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that's a bit far-fetched, but, you know, yeah, you know, that, I love that challenge too. And where, you know, overblow is certainly not very stable sounding. I'm not going to use it and try to play in the key of F sharp on a C harmonica or the key of B and a, you know, something that's completely foreign and so far away from the key center. It's just not going to sound very good. But, you know, used judiciously as passing tones and, and choosing songs that are more or less, you know, sit in a certain key. It, it, the, the diatonic is an amazing instrument. It's interesting because I, I, I totally agree with you. you know, I, I, I normally feel like the, the weirdo in the room who likes that the overblow sounds a little bit different and it, and it, it pops through. I don't know that there's something just so wonderful about hitting that six overblow, uh, and you know, in second position and just hearing it sing, even though it, it sounds very different to everything else. Um, and I, I think it's uh, it's interesting that that you like it, and and yet overblows get so much disdain in the harmonica world. Uh, why why do you think that is? Well, just for the very reason, you know, Joe Felisco and I had a very deep discussion about, you know, overblows and stuff. And as he points out, it's the most unstable sound. And he's right, you know, that the instrument can produce. So, I mean, honestly, my goal, if I'm going to use overblows, I, I don't want them to sound like overblows. I want them to sound like just as much as possible as, as is possible regular notes. So I don't want them to pop out, you know, I want them. And so I'll practice if there's a certain thing that I might be playing in a certain song, like a lot of the jazzy stuff I play, I've worked out. I, I said that in the, in the Neil Warren interview, um, you know, I don't have the chops, although I'm working on it, you know, to, to just play and improvise really freely and, and, in, and in, in quote unquote intelligently, you know, on, on jazz changes. But, I, I, I do practice that stuff, but not hard enough. And the point is, is that I want my overblows to sound as, as, as at least hopefully close to, you know, a regular note and use them as passing tones. And that's really it. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, yeah, you mentioned playing over changes and, and that for me is instantly the thing that, that causes an issue with, with, the diatonic harmonica I'm, I'm a guitarist originally and so yeah. the idea of playing over changes you know the instrument is laid out to play over changes just like a piano is laid out very effectively for that kind of thing whereas harmonica is beautifully laid out to play over one four and five but but how how do you do you, do you find that you get limited in terms of what types of changes you can play over or are you working on being able to do anything that gets thrown at you in a jazz standard context uh in a perfect world i'm 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 i would like to think that i could I, i'm not sure if i have the discipline to show up for three hours a day which you you would need at least that kind of practice to and, and you know uh to practice the drills and skills of playing things in all 12 keys you have to do that mm-hmm. if you want to play jazz standards i mean 
there's no real way of getting around it. And, and so I'm sort of partly lazy, partly, you know, I'm not really that interested in playing through a bunch of complex jazz changes. Again, you know, certain tunes like the Jersey Bounce, which I've been playing for years, um, those kind of jazz standards that don't go too far outside the key changes or the, the, the key of the harmonica, um, you know, I'm willing to tackle those types of tunes because I think they sound good on a diatonic. You can, you can make them sound good. Cool. And then yeah. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, you know, the actual... The, the, the physical element, which is the harmonica. Uh, I noticed you use golden melodies, or certainly I've seen you use golden melodies in videos. Um, are they standard? Are you setting them up still, or is someone setting them up for you? Um, back in 95, when I got um, to study with Howard for a month, I actually um, went and hung out there for two months. I mean, I'd, I'd already taken four week-long um classes sort of master classes with him when he used to teach in Elkins, West Virginia between 88 and 91. And then I, in 95, I got to study with him. I met Joe Felisco in 95 and, and he helped, he was the first one to help me like set up harps and stuff. And, and so, um, and he taught me some, a few things. So I do all my own setup and customization, but it's really bare bones, basically a bit of embossing on the, on the reed plates to get the, the reeds to play louder. And then, you know, I do a compromise gapping of the reed. Any player that harmonica player that is into overblows knows about reed gapping. And, and so I, I set up my harp so that I have to work a little bit harder for my overblows. Um, and that allows me to play a bit louder when I'm just playing a regular blow note up to holes four, five, and six, let's say, right? Those, you know, if you, if you, if you put the gap in too close and you go to head, you hit a regular hole four, five, or six really hard, nothing will happen. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like there'll be no sound. So, uh, I, I, at the expense of sometimes missing an overblow, I will set my reads up so that I have to work a little bit harder for the overblows. Um, it just it just lets me play a little bit more aggressively. I remember once trying to play one of Howard's harmonicas. This is years ago, so I don't know what his harps are like now. But I think, wow, these are set up so tight. I would never be able to play as aggressively as I'd like to play. So you have to breathe very differently depending on how the reeds are set up. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Also, there's an, uh, there's a bit of your playing that I, I was going to ask you about, which I think ties in with this, which is the the kind of dynamic. Uh, work in your playing because I, I I noticed that well I, loads of players don't bother with this and you do and it's beautiful but you vary the volume so much uh, and and your attack you play a lot with that um, and I'm assuming that if you if you had that really tight gap uh, on those blow reads you'd lose a lot of that ability to to play with such a wide range of volume well thanks um I think that's one of the things I'm always trying to share with my students is that idea of like foundational techniques of working on control of a bent note and just that thing, let's say, we'll have an A-flat harmonica here, but... Uh, and that idea of leaning into the note with the embouchure but not moving the pitch, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. That's a more advanced bending technique. And, and that... But I love. What was the question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was. I was just about uh, dynamics. About right. dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did a short little video called "Ta Ta Articulation and Note Dynamics." So again, whether you're playing a single note or a bent note, you know, the embouchure is the embouchure. It's the embouchure, and and it takes a while to appreciate the nuances and the subtleties of what you have to do with your mouth to shape a note, and and to hold it once you can bend a note and, and to play with dynamics. But it's something that, you know, early on every harp player should, should pay a lot of attention to. And then you can, you know, you can do all those things and play with dynamics. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I love that trying to emulate that Stan Getz or Paul Desmond, you know, you know, listen to enough of those guys and, you know, that's, 
you know, on the on the saxophone reed where you just yeah, hear the yeah. breath. You know, like so I like to think that I can sometimes try to do that in some of my acoustic tunes where I'm playing sort of jazzier stuff. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> you know kind of thing it's it's a, it's such a, an important part of playing and i think i was chatting to one of my pals about this another harmonica teacher and and we were saying that basically it's it's kind of the the one thing that can elevate most people's playing instantly is just just learning how to play dynamically and and knowing the full range of volume they can get out of a hole the people listening to this can't see me nodding my head <laughs> aggressively. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent agree. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just one of the many things, of course, but yeah, but absolutely dynamics and understanding that is, is pretty foundational. Cool. So I, I want to, uh, skip, skip a little bit away from the, uh, just the, the pure music -y stuff just for a moment. Um, cause you did, you did mention that you studied to be a sculptor and, um, and it sounds like you, you did a little bit of that professionally and then you switched to becoming a, a full-time musician. Uh, what, what, what made that shift? Um, well, as I say, I started playing harmonica when I was 14 and I was always, you know, as an early teenager pursuing drawing and I, I took, I was really into art at high school. And then I, um, I worked in an architect's office as an office boy. My father was an architect before I took a year off between high school and art school. And I realized I didn't want to become an architect. I, mean, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then I ended up four years at Ontario College of Art and majoring in sculpture and then worked towards a bursary, which took me to Italy to study the stone carving. Um, and so I was really into it. You know, when I tended when I do something, I just tend to really dive into it and, and, um, so this was no exception. Um, but uh, I was always playing harmonica at the time, and I was a part of a couple of bands and the duos in art school. And then when I got back from Italy, I spent nine months there. I, I after a couple of years, I, I, I joined, sorry, uh, yeah, I joined a band where we played every weekend in, um, with a sax player, I learned a lot of my chops about learning about playing harmonies, playing with the saxophone player. We played, we had a house gig in this little bar downtown Toronto. So I learned a lot there. And then by the time I was 30, I had a cross, crossroads, didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd sort of more or less given up playing sculpt, sorry, sculpting. Need a place to get dirty and with stone carving, which was sort of what my favorite thing was. Um, and... Uh, I actually went to see a career counselor thinking I'd go to apply some of the credits from art school towards university degree towards becoming an art high school teacher, let's say. Uh, and then I signed up for university and three courses in one year. I thought I'd go part-time and continue uh, um, playing. I was also working part-time as a poster framer for my old, in fact, for my art high school teacher uh, quit teaching and opened up the shop he was a really cool guy very smart and i worked from on and off for him for for 15 years before i became full-time musician so 30 i had a crossroads and basically i that's when i decided i wanted to become a full-time musician i had kind of an epiphany i had a chance to work on this play um where i was the only musician and i was playing harmonica for one of the characters in the play they went on the road and basically I dropped the short stories I dropped out of university and um, I never looked back and then uh, continued working part time until I was 40, less and less, and then sort of jumped in full time as a musician. I didn't start singing until I was 30 because I realized, OK, if I want to have my own band, I got to start singing, started taking singing lessons, doing all that stuff. That's so funny that you mentioned the singing because that that was literally the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about because you, you are please don't take this the wrong way but you're a surprisingly good uh, singer and band leader because I, I I heard about you a lot before I listened to you and I just heard about you know fantastic harmonica player and you got to check out like this technical wizard and then I watched this gig I think it was. Uh, it's probably about 15 years ago uh, that it was televised. I didn't watch it 15 years ago. I watched it 
earlier. Um, but uh, but you're just phenomenal singer, phenomenal band leader. And was that by any chance? Was it a full concert by yeah. any chance? Was it Cafe Campus? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was like late 90s. That's wow. like 21, 22 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks. I killer. mean, you know, thanks. Uh, do you still work on, on, on the singing and uh, on, on that kind of technical side? Less, less. You know, <laughs> I, I took so many different singing lessons with so many different teachers, you know, just as I've done with the harmonica, applying it and taking lessons with saxophone players, guitar players, piano players, just to understand stuff about theory and about how to think about practicing, you know, this riff, that riff. There's always something to be gleaned. But singing, oh my God, it was like, you know, at one point I was really determined to become like a much better singer. But I think I've always, it's, you know, I've sort of stopped caring. And in fact, I, I, because of that, I think I'm just more relaxed. And it's like, okay, this is what my voice can do. All right, that's it. You know, just sing in that range. Don't try it. I mean, I covered uh, Little Wing, which, you know, I never thought I had in a million that I could sing. But, you know, I, I do a journeyman's job on it. And it's not, you know, I don't cringe when I listen to it. So that's a good sign, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, and yeah, uh, that, that is actually a great cover you did, Little Wing. I'm going to put thanks. that in the show notes for people to listen to. I highly encourage. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I feel that, that harmonica and, and singing go hand in hand in terms of a lot of the same uh, techniques and, and, you know, getting that breath control foundation um, and the relaxation. So do you, do you think that, that they helped each other? Do you think learning to sing helped your harmonica playing and vice versa? That's an interesting question because I've always thought like the natural vibrato that you hear on a good singer, I've never, if I may be really relaxed, I, I just don't do it enough. You know, there's, there is some kind of a natural vibrato, but I just, it's always been a mystery to me. The, the, the natural good vibrato of a good singer. It's like, how the heck do you do that? And, and it's very different than a harmonica vibrato. I mm -hmm. think uh, it's a very, volitional if that's the right word willful thing that you're doing when you do a harmonica vibrato and there's you know i don't want to get into a big thing about the different types of vibrato but there's two main types and and singing vibrato i think is something that kind of just you let happen like I, most of the singing teachers that i that i studied with you know talked about that stuff and and um it's always been a mystery to me yeah <laughs> is it, is it I'll something leave it at that okay <laughs> fair enough fair enough um okay well let's 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 talk a little bit more about um kind of the picking up the harmonica and uh, i wanted to chat a little bit about the role of transcription um and obviously you've you've spent a lot of time transcribing harmonica you 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 have you know you, you clearly know the language of of you know the greats um but I, I'm interested in what other instruments really get you excited to, to transcribe and what, what some of those challenges are. I mean, once I started playing, you know, with overblows and, and learning, then there was no, it never, it, did, it didn't depend on what the instrument was. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just, oh, that's, I love that melody. And what, what, what is he playing? It doesn't matter whether it was a, piano, guitar, saxophone, or trumpet, but certainly those would probably be the main instruments that I was learning from. You know, like it's not like I tried to learn a hammered dulcimer solo or anything, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, you know, though, you know the, the, the sort of classic blues jazz instruments, which are piano, guitar, uh, sax, trumpet, those are the mm -hmm. first ones that come to my mind. So, And, and do you find that there are, there are certain positions that, that seem to be mechanically laid out better for certain instruments when you're transcribing, uh, or is it more kind of down to the individual song and you and what, what you're feeling? No, it's again, it's just, it's purely down to like, well, two things, the melody that's being played and just the, the vibe of what's being played versus, uh, and then, um, yeah, and the groove and the intonation, the tone of the of the instrumentalist, you know, and there's going to be different depending on um, uh, who's playing. Like uh, there was this one, for instance, at one point I was obsessed with this piano player, Eddie Costa, 
and he he there's these sessions that were up in this guy's house he died when he was 31 he was a ridiculous piano player and um there's this session with tal farlow he's a guest with tal farlow and they're and this guy just had a tape recorder running in these late night sessions and just amazing stuff and he does they do out of nowhere and he does this whole solo playing octaves all octaves on the piano and it goes on and on it's like a seven minute solo chorus after chorus and it's so creative and really bluesy in spots and and this kind of his sense of phrasing and a sense of dynamics and a sense of time and just the vibe was just like oh my god that's you know so that excites me and so it doesn't matter whether it's a, a jazz voice or a blues voice there's there's got to be something unique about that player that i just go yeah i've got to try to put that into my own playing you know and how do you how do you approach kind of more of those chordal instruments because that that's the big frustration for me as a guitarist and harmonica player i you know I, there are so few chords available on the harmonica um and and yeah i mean you know you do a great job of of being an accompanist when someone else is taking a solo how, how do you approach that um yeah that's true you you're limited with the chord so it it, it comes down to you know placement of notes and rhythm more than anything and you have to be more select so here i can play a chord or two notes or this interval on this chord change and and other times you're just playing single notes comping to accentuate something and something interesting rhythmically but yeah that's that you just have to be creative judici judicious <laughs> in your, in your so choices. when you're playing into do you find that you you play splits that aren't octaves do you do kind of slightly more interesting splits yeah i mean i don't think this is terribly original or anything but i mean um you know if, if you're playing a blues that's just you know i'm uh, playing cross harp on an a flat harmonica So there on the four chord, I'm, I'm playing, you know, three, five and two, four with a, just a, a, a little split. That sounds cool on the four chord, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's something I like to do a lot. Or, and then of course the kind of thing, or just, you know, kind of stuff, you know. That's really cool. I'm just uh, I'm I'm doing I'm doing the maths in my head. What what that three five and two four are? That's cool. I like it. <laughs> well, you know the well, the four chord the four chord of course on the harmonica it's just all triads, right? Mm -hmm. So you're just playing you know the, the 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 root and the fifth or the third and the or the uh, the third and the root or the fifth and the third. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah, all. Yeah. You, yeah. That's it. So. That's cool, though. It's it, it's a little bit more interesting than what you hear generally. Um, it's certainly a hell of a lot more interesting than what I do when we get to the four chords. So <laughs> I will be yeah, practicing there. that. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so uh, another thing that you do that's slightly unorthodox is uh, is using pedals uh, in your playing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, about how you do that? Sure. I mean, the the, the go-to thing that I've always used forever since I started playing was some kind of delay pedal. Mm -hmm. And then and then uh, in the last few years, I've gone to the dark side and actually got a pedal board <laughs> because only because I was just tired of setting up three or four pedals on top of my my amplifier. So I'd have a so the last you know ten years I got into I know Dennis Grunling likes these things the Kinder anti feedback. Okay. It's built into the Harp King amps, but you can buy it at a pedal. Basically, it's built as an anti-feedback, but it does something kind of interesting to the sound and the tone. And I'll use it even with all the knobs in the in the off. Well, then, as soon as you're plugged into it, you're 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 running through the sound of the pedal, and it has its own sound. So even with all the knobs in the most in the most minus position, mm -hmm. um, it has its own sound, and I'll use it like that often. Um, and then I also got a lone wolf. It's called an octaver or octave pedal. It's not an octaver, but it, it boosts high and low end harmonics. And you only need it on certain amps, but it can really help um, 
uh, yeah, with certain amps kind of fatten things up and brighten things up at the same time in a subtle way. And again, I use that in a most minimal, almost with the knob in its the of the actual effect mm-hmm. you can use it as a distortion pedal but i use it almost in its off position in its minimal posi- setting sorry um and then uh another thing that roly platt just turned me on to there's these micro like micro amps um mxr makes one mm-hmm. actually lone wolf has something called the harp tone plus which is similar but not quite the same animal the advantage of the, of the harp tone plus pedal is that you can use it to attenuate, in other words, cut the volume of an amp, which is kind of cool. If you have an unruly amp, then it's got a bass and treble. But the the, the MXR um, Microamp Plus has a bass and a treble as well, and it's just a, a very clean a clean boost, and it really can help fatten up a sound, either a big amp or a little amp, in different ways. It's really interesting, uh, and so I've been really enjoying that. Um, those are the main things, but. Um, and then because I got a pedal board and I had all this room on the pedal board, I got, <laughs> I got Empress effects makes great stuff. So, Oh, but, uh, sorry. The delay pedal I used for years, I was using a, t- a real tape delay until it broke down. <laughs> wow. I took it with me on the road until it broke down for 10 years. I put it underneath this, the, the airplane seat in front of me. It was big, heavy thing. And now I'm using a, a digital delay by Empress effects. And the great thing about it is it's got an analog drive-through. So unlike just about every other delay pedal out there, as soon as, even though they talk about a true bypass, mm-hmm. um, when it's off, when you engage the pedal, most pedals means that your dry signal is also digitized. It's just you know, like pretty much, unless it's a heavy-duty boutique pedal. And so when this Canadian company, Empress Effects, long-winded answer, but you're asked, um, <laughs> Their first version of their delay pedals was all digital signal through. And now the latest one called the Echo System has an analog drive through. That means your the main meat, meat of your sound is still analog um, and only the effect is, is digitized. And that makes, I can hear the difference. Probably the average person in the audience isn't. I can hear the difference. And it sounds great and it's fully programmable. You can save presets and it's got tap tempo of all different types of tap tempos. You can create great analog tape delayed sweep emulations and stuff, which, you know, there's certain things that will only use once or twice in a night. Um, and, you know, uh, but it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have an MXR reverb pedal, which is a really great sounding, similar to the Hall of Fame. Um, I like what it does. And, uh, and then the Empress Effects... Um, you know, the reverb, I'm only going to use maybe twice a night. Um, and again, I only got that because I got the pedal board. Mm-hmm. Empress Effects also makes this thing called the Nebulous. It's an all digital through signal, but it's still pretty cool sounding. You can save up to eight presets. And it does either or and a combination of chorusing, flanging, or phasing. So you can get either subtle chorusing effects, subtle flanging, or a, a very prominent Leslie uh, speaker effect. And again, I might use that maybe on my set once or twice a night. That's it. You know, there, there, oh, and then the last thing is uh, <laughs> elect, electroharmonics pog, which is a real octaver. Yeah. You can, you know, uh, and, I, I, and again, I use that maybe once or twice a night because it's kind of a gimmick, mm-hmm. but it's sometimes fun to use when you're playing horn lines or something yeah. or just, you know, to punctuate one part of a solo but as soon as you use it more than two or three times a night like for a solo it just sort of sounds very gimmicky to me mm-hmm. all that stuff i'm not into compressors and you know um i think you know i want dynamics in my sound yeah, <laughs> and, and, it, yeah. it's interesting though because you you described a lot of stuff that's kind of um minimal and and it's it's mainly going to be you that's going to be hearing it obviously something like the the pog everyone's going to hear it because that that's a very definite effect mm-hmm. um but I, I think it's, it's interesting this idea of the the things that you need as a player and i don't just mean you specifically we all need to to make us feel excited and comfortable on stage um and and sometimes it can be such a small change that is almost imperceptible to the audience but it's that one thing that just makes you feel inspired to play 
Um, do, you, do you find that that has gotten kind of more important to you as your ear gets more and more finely tuned over the years? It's it, it no a good question. I mean, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, as I, you know, uh, as I know that I get older, I don't I don't want to be carrying around a big amp. Mm-hmm. So on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, yeah. So I'm getting more and more into small amps, and and you know, if I could sell most of my big amps, you know, I'll probably will at some point because I just know I'm not going to want to cart them around. Um, what was the question? <laughs> no, I, I was uh, just asking about uh, whether your ears have kind of tuned tuned into more and more minutia uh, in, oh, in right. sounds. Yeah. So thank you. So um, um, the microamp plus pedal by MXR mm-hmm. actually is one of the biggest changes that I've discovered that's helped the minutia of sound and sort of making things bigger than they really are. It can make a small amp sound even bigger than it really is. It's pretty cool. So it's sort of always there now in my signal chain. Very, very cool. And then yeah. just finally about amps, I, I'm fairly sure I've, I've spied some some of the kind of usual suspects, the kind of Fender Bassman uh, kind of thing. Is, is that is that what you you generally use? Oh yeah. So, I mean, that was the first amp I ever had, just one of those reissues. And then eventually I had a point to point wired. I don't know if it made a huge difference in terms of the sound, but, um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing for years and years. And I, you know, I've never really studied the mechanics of what tube amps do, but I know what I like. Um, um, I, my favorite amp right now is this little five watt, uh, a guy, Nick, Kappa Greco, I think, made them only for a few years. He only made a few of them. It was basically a modified guitar amp. But it's got, he built a, an extra preamp volume control on the back of it. But it's also got mid-treble and bass. It's almost like a mini basement. Like, I can get the thing to sound really snarly. And I've used it on uh, on the Blues Etc. CD. I use it in just about all the tracks on that. Except for the two live tracks, that was a little... That was a Harp Gear 2 amp, 5 watt with an 8-inch speaker. But yes, the Spirit Heart Pro is the Nick, the one I was talking about by Nick Capagreco, which they don't make anymore. Um, People are going to be trying to track them down now. Yeah, yeah. I actually have two of them because I liked it so much. A, a friend of mine was getting on and he, he, he said, yeah, sure, I'll sell it to you. So. Very cool. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm mindful of, of taking up too much of your time and I've really appreciated it. I, I, I could talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> Very cool. Well, ho- hopefully there'll be a, another opportunity at some point. All right. All right. Take care. Take Thanks. care. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tomlin's Harmonica Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review on your podcast player of choice. Join me next Monday for the next episode. Happy harping. <laughs>